Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Mary Donovan, is a medical educator with Georgetown University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C. In this conversation, we explore the impact of the pandemic on medical education, and she comments, I honestly think we're going to see certainly a peer group of more sensitive, more keen on paying attention to the patient in front of them. I really feel like I've seen enough of that already. It is our pleasure to broadcast a conversation with Mary Donovan. Mary Donovan, you're very welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you. And I noticed that somewhere in your bio, there's mention of you being involved in marketing, yet here you are involved in medical education. Tell us about that journey. How did you go from the dark side to the even <laughs> darker side? And, and that's just the start of it. That's the tip of the iceberg of all the jobs I've ever had. You know, that was, that was a way of to be honest, the, the marketing job I took because the zip code of the office was in the zip code that I lived. <laughs> I, I'd been commuting downtown for a long time and thought, all right, what else can I do? But I had, you know, woven through this bewildering life work path for many, many years, even before I was a marketer. And some of that was in medical education, almost by good luck. Um, when I was in college, I was, I was an RA, a resident advisor, and I was singing at night and I was lifeguarding on the weekends and pulling together money for tuition and books and all that. And I lived in Charlottesville where I went to undergrad in the summers. And I thought, you know, I should just go down to the, the, the office of employment at the school and see if somebody in the community is looking for for me to do anything. I had washed dishes. I had done things that weren't as meaningful. So I wrote down, I wrote down three words. They said, give some keywords of jobs that you'd be interested in interviewing. And I wrote education, medical, children. And I thought, all right, I'll turn this thing in. It was all on paper at the time. And I thought, all right, if, if one of these words turns out to turn into a job, that's much better than washing dishes or selling cosmetics at Woolworths or, you know, all these other things I've done. And I was lifeguarding still at the same time. And it turned out there was a job for which all three of those words applied. And I met with the, the hospital children's education director, and she needed a teacher aide in the Children's Rehabilitation Center at, at University of Virginia. And she just walked me into a room full of children with, you know, head halos implanted and you know, drooling out onto my arm as I was leaning over to meet them. And she just watched me the whole time. It almost didn't matter what my skills were, but could I stand this? Could I bear the smell of, you know, diapers in the room? And, and I was just so thrilled to talk to each child. And the fact that it was in a hospital was fine. I was already an English major, so I knew I wasn't pre-med or anything. I, I was into the arts and literature. But I just felt compelled to that world of healing and caring. And I, I didn't imagine I would get a master's in special ed myself, but I thought, this world, what a great summer job. So I already had that experience of working with many doctors and therapists under one roof. It was one big center where 
students would go to school, you know, for part of the day. And that was my part of their day. And I kind of ran this one room schoolhouse, whatever the grade or level of, oh, here comes the the kid likes calculus. (laughs) And it would be the second grader who just wanted to read fairy tales, that kind of thing. So, you know, there I was an English major having worked in a hospital and taught and knew I loved those things. But I got out of college thinking, I am not sure why, but I did not think I would live very long. I, I didn't think I'd really make it much into my 30s. Just sort of, yeah, I know, I know, I know. No one can see your face, but I love your face right now. I, I think I, well, to be honest, I had a lot of friends, peers who, who died young you know, in teenage and college even. And I had been studying all these romantic poets who, you know, Keats and Byron, and they all died of consumption or something when they were 23. And I thought, all right, Mary, what do you want to have done by the time you're 30? It's it's not going to go to grad school, not yet anyway. And I probably won't live long enough to go. I want to do two things. I wanted to travel. I wanted to see more of the world. And I wanted to think about auditioning for a band. I'd been singing by myself acoustically <laughs> in back rooms all through college. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to be on stage and play like electric guitar? And my friends were all buying, you know, business suits and interviewing and taking their GREs. And those are the only two things I wanted to do. Because <laughs> I knew when I was 30, if I made it past 30, I, I wouldn't have the energy to ride around in a van with a bunch of guys and musical equipment around the country or, you know, like I ended up doing in my 20s. So I found my way through those things and then lucked into through a friend whose cousin needed help doing medical research. I would go to the National Library of Medicine, Library of Congress, and take at that time online searches were really just the abstract. You couldn't get full text. You could search if you're a researcher in a you know a pharmaceutical company or a medical library and you're looking for monoclonal antibodies or serotonin reuptake, that kind of thing. You couldn't read the article. So I would drive around and go to these different libraries and try to absorb. It was interesting what these researchers were working on. I would just be interested in the abstract. And I would photocopy, literally stand there with a roll of quarters and a library because all that was, you know, the, the, the phone that we used to go online was a, a dual dial phone. You wedge it onto, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the original fax machine, you know, you had to kind of stick an actual phone onto this device. So I'd photocopy these articles for all these medical researchers, pharmaceutical companies, agricultural companies. And that was just riveting. But then I, I made it into a band and I did want to like go for it. We got an agent. We hit the road. We played a lot around New York State and uh, the northern part of the country, crossed into Canada a little bit. And I realized, okay, um, have you seen the movie The Commitments? So it was a bit like that. We came together. We made some noise. It was a really good experience to just see people dancing from the sound you're making, sweating right in front of you, you know, playing an electric rhythm guitar and being kind of the front person, the lead person in a band. But I knew this was not going to last forever. So I just needed a full-time job. And I took that in a trade association that dealt with health in a funny way, refrigeration, air conditioning, and heating, which were pretty basic to, you know, if you can't keep your insulin cold or your 
hospital loses power or your your um, people around the country were freezing to death or being heat struck to death. And I got interested in that side of things. So after that job, I was there nine years and I was tired of commuting into the city. And I thought I had done membership marketing. I'd done PR communications. I was the national liaison for all the chapters in the country. And so I could say I had done marketing, you know, like a lot of people can. (laughs) I'd written newsletters, those kind of things. And I literally just looked for jobs in my zip code. I was going to start a master's of fine arts in writing program and didn't want, you know, I'd go to work all day and then get a master's at night kind of thing. And I found one doing marketing and, and it was a wonderful company to work for. They just closed their doors. But after that, it was writing. And then I got back into acting. This is a very long way, but I, there is a thread that I can see. I, I understand you probably can't. But when I got back into acting and joined the Screen Actors Guild, I would see ads, in particular one from Johns Hopkins University, saying, our medical education program is looking for actors to portray family members in end-of-life scenarios to, to give not just students, but they were doing this with practitioners, teams of practitioners, transplant coordinators, neurologists, nurses, chaplains. They were all in these teams. And I started doing that work and discovered this whole world that I've been in ever since. So since 98. It's really nice to hear the whole background to how you came to be where you are. And I just want to double check here. You, you didn't think you were going to die in your 30s because you had an illness. No, I, not, I just thought I shouldn't expect a long life. I, I just thought that would be uh, like almost rude of me in, in the face of life. Like life was a character and it would be rude of me to think that I would get a long life. I don't, I'm not sure why. I really am not sure why. I just didn't think that was something to take for granted, even at a young age. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, I have some chronic issues. I have allergies and some joint pain and asthma, those kinds of things. But I didn't have any kind of very serious health crisis, really. It was more existential, philosophical. Yes, it was a romantic idea that like Shelley and Keats and all these people, you would just, you would just... (laughs) Put your hand upon your brow and see yourself fade away into the distance. Uh, yeah, interesting. But that, of course, I'm, first of all, I'm delighted that it, it wasn't like that because you've gone on to do some amazing things. I want to talk about those in particular. So you've talked about your introduction to standardized patients and the whole area of simulation. And that's an area that you've really embraced in the latter part of your career. Talk a little bit about that. What do you think is the value of those simulated experiences? After all, they're not real. These are not real people with real, well, not, they're, not, they're not people with real problems. They're people who are portraying a problem for the benefit of the person who then is going to have to deal with this in real life. So talk about why you think that is so valuable. So thank you for asking that. It's something that our students ask as well. Why, why, until they experience it, they can't imagine the value of the fakiness of it. You know, we're just pretending. But unlike 
you know, watching actors on stage from a distance, standardized patient work simulation is right up close. You're literally sometimes knees are touching the person who's caring for you or a team member in these these initial end-of-life scenarios that it would take a half a day to live through the series of scenes. And you had to pull it out of you as the portrayer with real authenticity. You, you, the, the verisimilitude part of it is completely critical because you're, you're 20 inches away from another human's eyes. And their body language, you've been trained to take notes on their verbal and nonverbal communication, the whole tableau. You're listening for certain things. You're watching for certain things visually. And the feedback that you can give someone from a patient perspective, having lived through what turns out to be very real for both of you, it's a very real feeling when they're that close to you and you're being told your sister's second brain death exam was not what we had hoped for. And, you know, this happens every Monday and Wednesday for, for me for years. We took the show on the road, even when I was working at other men's schools. So you're absorbing it as the person who's being cared for and how you're being cared for is really important. It's, it's, it becomes personal a personal experience and a memory, the memory of having lost a sister and grieving over that and having care providers of one kind or another with compassion who are really truly actively listening and not trying to shut you down or fill you with a bunch of facts about the brain and why is this person not understanding? You know, as I started to see just twice a week at least, and then I thought, this is really interesting. When a, when a care provider walks in knowing that you're acting, starts crying with you, you've gotten somewhere with that person. You've, you've bonded with that person in, in a matter of minutes or hours. And the experience of living through that in a, in a safe place, that's sort of the ground rules. You always set it up. When I orient students, I'm going to do that tomorrow morning. I'm going to say, just want to remind you of our good faith contract, which I invented, I, but I start them off the first year out of all four years, that we're in a safe space and that our good faith contract is that we're all doing our best. We know that this is in, in some way an artificial environment, but our patients are doing their best to be this very specific patient. And they know you're not doctors yet, you're doing your best. And we've done our best to make the environment as authentic as we can, or our Zoom as authentic as we can. We often do things now virtually. And the experience of the student who forgets that this person isn't really who who they're portraying they are today, that they will, I've seen it for years now, it's so thrilling that a former student, maybe when back in my SP days, I'll still now and then run into you know, now they're a clerkship director or they're, they're way past residency themselves. And they'll ask me about that sinus pain that I had in, in 2001. <laughs> you know, or they'll recognize me as a patient instructor and say, you know, I just want to thank you. The fact that they even recognize me is, is unbelievable. But the patients that I now write cases for and train have that experience too. It's, 
It's a lived experience. It's not fake in the real feelings that can come up. And that sensory experience, that whole, I've stopped breathing because what my patient is saying is making me very uncomfortable. And the patient's trained to notice that. You, I, it's, it looked like you stopped breathing a little. I was a little concerned. And you took that breath. And I, I was relieved. And this the student isn't aware that they stopped breathing. It has to be pointed out. Or, you know, when they just roll their stool back as far away from the patient as possible because they don't like what's happening, but they're not even aware that they're doing it. And in feedback, they hear that. Oh, so you, you were trying to get away from me, weren't you? you know, so they are, it's, it's a learning opportunity for, they're already healthcare providers, even if it's just for standardized patients. But their primary clinical year comes and we sprinkle these kinds of feedback opportunities throughout. And it's one more clinical exposure, even if it's in our center that was built just with cameras and microphones. So it's not fake. It, it, you know, I try to tell them we do remediation workshops and because some of them really just can't get past that. They, they can't get over the fact that I know this person doesn't really have that. And the way I try to approach that is to say, well, you don't know that they don't really have that. Sometimes they're using part of their actual medical history. Maybe they do, maybe they don't know what that kind of pain really feels like. Don't worry about that part. If it helps to assume that maybe they really do have that, take that assumption. That's part of your good faith. If, if you keep in mind that they're somebody's real patient, you know, we work with Sim Man and Sim Baby. They, the kind of very expensive computerized, they're like robot people. We do a little bit of that, but I tell them, you know, this is a human being that you're sitting and talking to. It's not a sim man. This is someone who has authentic reactions to and interactions with you. And they're there to help you learn. They're committed to that. They, they really are teachers as well as portrayers, or they're not even all really actors. Sometimes it helps not to be an actor because they want to make the role their own. You know, we want to give a very specific opportunity to a student. And sometimes the ones who miss being on stage, we have to really kind of rein them in for the standardized part of it. It completely resonates, and certainly with my experiences, and I dare say many experiences of many, many other medical educators in terms of the ability to put a difficult situation as a challenge for a student in a safe environment where you know that if something happens that isn't the way it should have unfolded, no one's going to come to any harm and somebody's going to learn something from this. Because often you're recording that interaction or you're observing that interaction, there's a scope for some feedback in a safe environment. That's increasingly important in the world in which we live. And the world in which we live is litigious. It is complicated because people bring multimorbidity to the table. So you don't want the first time that somebody is dealing with a problem to be a live situation where somebody could get hurt, somebody could come to a poorer outcome than is possible given what we now know. You talked when we, before we started about how much more difficult the world has become in the last two years. Say something about that. 
Well, just, you know, thinking from my own little bubble of, of work, the methodology is literally hands-on, literally on-site in a built, architecturally built center with a lot of technology involved so that we can record encounters and review them with a student, try them again after some feedback. That's how it was all designed. And suddenly, we're all sent home, and we were off campus for 17 months. So we had to literally, I mean, I just barely slept trying to think how to completely (laughs) translate this literally tactile sitting 20 inches away from another set of eyes to Zoom, to, you know, the Brady Bunch series of boxes on a can. Oh my gosh. And literally the thing that really kind of saved us just in terms of all staying employed and keeping our, our SPs employed and the learning being truly still rich and meaningful was that telehealth in, in COVID became this, you know, ramped up exponentially. And it's really not going to go away. The, the last doctor visit I had, I was in Natural Bridge, Virginia on my way to North Carolina about 10 days ago. And in this hotel at Natural Bridge, Virginia, I had a doctor visit on, on Zoom and it, it was fine. It was as meaningful as being with her. It's very different, but there are communication skills and interpersonal skills that need to be considered in a different way than when you're sitting in a room with someone. So that's an opportunity. We're, we're, we, we translated all of that into you know, a virtual environment with, with cameras and microphones still. Actually, some of it we were kind of more familiar with. Uh, the parts that were especially challenging were, of course, the physical exam component because there's subjective data gathering and objective data gathering. And we were trying to teach preclinical students how to do physical exams over Zoom. That was our obligation. So this fall, what we're in the thick of right now, we've got double classes. We have the class that is now finally able to do things in person as they would have, and then the class that missed it last year. So instead of 210 students learning physical exams in our center, we have 420. And the genitourinary physical exams, the male and female, we couldn't do that over Zoom. So we have 420 second years and clinical students. So some students who've already had have have been asked to do a rectal exam, for example, on a clinical site. They've never really learned it. So they're learning it the old school way, but we're able at least to get them the practice, which we have found in some ways is even more powerful to have an actual patient on-site experience and be asked to do a pelvic exam when you haven't learned how to do it yet. The third years, the clinical students have been coming into our center on Saturdays and Sundays as if they know it all. You know, I'm already rotating. There's nothing more you can tell me. I've already done however many pelvic exams and rectalism. And they walk out like, oh my gosh, that was so helpful. That was so helpful to have the patient be the instructor and go through an entire teaching protocol that their, their third year resident wasn't going to go through with them. And the patient isn't prepared, isn't trained to be the teacher. So our patient instructor 
side of things has has not really suffered, I don't think. I think in a way it's become more meaningful. But the students who did their entire first year virtually, you know, I, I came in the first Saturday when they were going to learn, you know, the first stranger they were going to touch was going to be a female and then a male, most intimate, most often just heightened experience at, at any class year, any year that this, this teaching has happened. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're going to be throwing up in the trash cans and they're going to be just unable to even walk in the door. And it was the opposite. They were all so light and just so happy to be on site and to meet each other finally and to interact. We're really finally doing it. We really might actually become doctors, even if we're a little bit delayed. So what we found, at least partway through this you know, first semester, so we went back to campus August 5th, and so far it's been, I'd have to say, thrilling how compensatory, whatever level they are, they, they're just smart people and they're learners and they know the learning is for the long haul. And whatever they didn't get because of the pandemic yet, They have faith. They have good faith in us that we're going to get it into them. We're going to give them those experiences and that it it takes a village and that our boot camp for our clinical rotations will have to be different. And so there's a lot of pivoting and working around. I know those words are overused, but that's really been the name of the game for the past couple of years. And, And I, you know, none of us really thought it would last this long, but it, we don't know what variants could come out of it. So, I think they're going to be better prepared, Moyes, for uncertainty, which is part of doctoring, is part of life, it's part of any profession. You don't know what's coming down the pike tomorrow. And uncertainty, if they're just questioning their certainty of a diagnosis that could kill someone if they don't think of a couple other things, uncertainty will serve them well. And they're they're feeling a little bit off balance, I think will serve them well. I think they're going to pay the most attention of any classes of students that we've had. I think they're going to be Gumby. Do you know Gumby and Pokey? These little bendy, um, (laughs) it was a little uh, children's show and, and you could actually have one in your hand. Pokey was a horse and Gumby had this strange shaped asymmetrical head. He was green and Pokey was orange, but they're, they were very bendy and you could make them put on little shows with them in your mind. And so I use those terms with, with students and our SPs. You know, we, we've got to think like Gumby and Pokey because we're going to be bending in ways we didn't know we would have to bend. And they seem to be up for it. They seem to be just so grateful to be in contact with people again and on a, on a site where it feels like their delay will not be, will not hurt them, will not hurt their patients someday. They're already thinking like that. I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah, I think you have good reason to be hopeful. We similarly experience a lot more enthusiasm for when students are on site and able to do things. And of course, it depends on what's going on in the pandemic at the time, how much we can facilitate that. We still have the social distancing rules. We still have the mask wearing and all those other things, which are very different to the way it used to be. 
coming back to the med school when you've been on rotation was like a break, like it was a place where you met your friends and that has been, that has suffered. But now that it, we're getting some semblance of that returning, it certainly feels different. Do you think that the doctors that will come out of the pandemic training years, as it were, will be in any way less than those that we produced before? I don't. It's a fast answer. I think they'll be as or possibly more prepared because they're aware of that. You know, they heard stories from upperclassmen about how things were going to work and it didn't work like that for them. So I think they've already been through the kind of head shuffle of, well, I shouldn't assume that I know what things are going to be like. My peers and I are going to have to kind of recreate some of this based on new information. You know, how, how do you treat somebody with a mask on when you have a mask on or even a face shield on? It, that's telehealth actually takes the mask off, which is an advantage. We found that our communication skills for er, the early block one students, they were so grateful not to come into the center. And we, oh, phew, they, they wanted to be able to see the patient's face and they were aware of that. So I think their antenna have maybe multiplied that they have feelers out of attention in ways that previous med students have not had to have. They haven't had to be almost like they have antenna out of the top of their heads, but also the ends of their fingers. And their their, their whole heart, I think, has antenna out that med students didn't need to have out. It's not that they were any less sensitive people, but this this whole experience of the world shutting down and this terrifying what's next and then kind of thinking we were over it and then this new wave and whoa we may never get out of this i, I honestly think we're we're going to see if not a full generation a, a certainly a peer group of more sensitive more keen on uh, paying attention to the patient in front of them I really feel like I've seen enough of that already, that if they're able to hang in there through a year of Zoom med school and they're not discouraged and they can just be joyful about whatever learning they can have, I think they have grown extra feelers, if that makes any sense. It does make sense, but I think there's another component to this, which perhaps you've been too humble to factor into this. And that is the enthusiasm that you bring to the education, that unknown quality of good medical educators, which really seems to bring out the best in your students. Mary Donovan, it's been a joy speaking with you today. It's quite clear that your students are extraordinarily lucky to have you leading them through this very difficult time. I think that positivity is something we need to share more freely amongst ourselves as, as medical educators, because it is very easy to see it as, well, medicine never was a distance learning course. But frankly, it isn't, because what you bring back into that experience is, as you've described it, a very much more enthusiastic recipient of the education that you're bringing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. The Health Design Podcast. Sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.